Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. My guest today is Rabbi Dan Judson, the Associate Dean of Professional Development and Placement at Hebrew College. His book, Pennies for Heaven, A History of American Synagogues and Money, will be published next year. He has been consulting to synagogues across the country on financial matters. His research has been featured in a number of publications, including the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and NPR. Previous to his role at Hebrew College, Dan served as the rabbi of Temple Beth David in Canton, Massachusetts for 10 years and co-authored a number of books on Jewish rituals. So it should be pretty obvious by now why I have asked Rabbi Judson to be on the program today. I've touched a little bit on synagogue engagement in this program already. And this is a particular topic that I had asked around and they said, the person you want to talk to is Rabbi Dan Judson, really specifically about this sort of fee structure. And as somebody who's recently moved to a new community, really looking at what our synagogue engagement looks like and how financially we could afford that. Thank you so much for being on the program. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So we'll begin as we always do with your personal story and your personal journey as to how you came into not only your position at Hebrew College, but also this deep research. As you mentioned in the kind introduction, I was congregational rabbi for 10 years in Boston and came to a point where I wanted to think about a transition and got more interested in academics and entered the Brandeis doctoral program in Jewish history with the idea that I was going to write a pretty boring dissertation on a biography of Hannah Adams, who was the first woman writer in American history. And one of the topics she wrote about was the history of Judaism. So she published the first book about Jews in America. It was going to be a pretty dry dissertation, probably interested by like three people who are interested in the history of Hannah Adams. One day, my teacher, Jonathan Sarna, showed me that there was, in fact, a new biography of Hannah Adams that had just come out and said, probably the world doesn't need two books about Hannah Adams. So we were casting about for a topic that was going to be something that would be interesting and thoughtful and potentially could use both my background in economics and my experience in synagogues when this topic sort of came forward actually from having read some Christian books, which are pretty insightful and illuminating about the history of the Protestant church and money. Professor Sarna, in his wisdom, said, this is a totally uncovered topic. You should do this research. And after you do this research into the history of American synagogues and money, I bet people are going to want to know how synagogues today should fund themselves. And so this was about eight or nine years ago or 10 years ago at this point. And he turned out to be prescient because I started doing this research into how synagogues used to fund themselves in America. And lo and behold, people were interested in how using some of that research and some of that history to think about how synagogues today should fund themselves to see if in the past there are any models that could be used again, renewed, that Jews have not always used the model we have today for how synagogues funded themselves. So that's how I got into the research and the idea about rethinking Jewish finances for synagogues. And in terms of professionally, when I started Brandeis, I also heed this amazing new rabbinical school Hebrew College opened up in my area. And I knew some of the people who were involved. And at one point, when it was about two or three years old, my wife said to me, I was still a rabbi for congregations. My wife said, at some point, Hebrew College is going to need some schlepper to be their placement office. And she said, I would not want to be that schlepper to be the placement <laughs> office. And a few years later, my now boss, Sharon Conan, and I had a conversation about me being the schlepper to be the placement office. 
we thought initially it was going to be a hard sell. Who's going to hire Hebrew college rabbis? They're not from the denomination. What congregation is going to hire them? Would Hillel care about them? Our fears were proven all wrong. The Jewish world has been very accepting of Hebrew college rabbis, and we've done a phenomenal job of placing our graduates in institutions and synagogues and Hillels and day schools, etc. Chaplaincy programs all over the country. So I didn't need to be such a schlepper. It worked out okay. And my sort of role at Hebrew college has sort of expanded beyond professional development to be teaching history and, and other pieces. So that's how I got from there to here. Fantastic. And how long have you been there now? 10 years. So you've really kind of seen an arc of how people have, as you've mentioned, accepted those graduates. That's fantastic. So talk to me a little bit about these historical models that have worked in the past that people have tried to revive. And is it just the simple donation model or are there other sort of forms, as you mentioned? So in the 19th century, I will try not to bore anybody with the history. (laughs) Synagogues actually didn't have dues. Synagogues sold seats to fund themselves. It's akin to the way that, for me, it's the Celtics. For you, it's probably the Knicks or whoever right. it is. You buy a season ticket for the Celtics game. In a synagogue, it was a very similar process that the seats closer to the action, as it were, or that were better seats for one reason or another, were sold at a higher price than seats in the back of the congregation. And so there were different prices for different seats. And you would buy a seat, and it was your seat in perpetuity you would pay a yearly seat fee on that seat, some percentage of the cost of buying that seat. And you own that seat the same way you own property. And that's the interesting piece. That is, if you passed away, the seat would be inherited by your son. If you moved out of town and wanted to give up your seat, you would have the right to ask the synagogue to pay you back for that seat. Some people would just end up donating their seat as a gift, but there was like a market for seats in a synagogue. So that was why synagogues funded themselves. And what happened was that there were a few people who were unhappy with that system. The nice part of that system for synagogues was that people were invested in a way that they aren't now because you literally owned a part of the synagogue. The synagogue better be functioning well because it was not just a spiritual investment, it was an actual investment, investment to some degree. But people weren't happy with that model because the problem was it lacked egalitarianism. The wealthier people got to sit up front. So there were people who decried the system and wanted synagogues to be free synagogues. So the most well-known person with this would be Stephen Wise, would be the name most associated with this. And he created in 1905 the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue, which still exists. When it was created, it was just called the Free Synagogue, and now it's called the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue. Where Um, is that? It's in New York City, on the west side. This synagogue, when he created it, he said it's going to be free from people paying for seats. Nobody should own any seats. There was going to be no dues. You would pay what you can. And that was a pretty simple model. It was explicit that he was sort of following on the church model of the free church model, which had existed in the 19th century in America. Just a small idea. You'd go to church and you would simply pay what you could for the upkeep of the church. Stephen Wise Free Synagogue stopped being a free synagogue at a certain point, but I think the idea was still a resonant. His idea was that the voluntary principle, the idea that you should give what you want, was actually the best thing for a religious community. That was the most noble thing. That was sort of the most compelling thing. You shouldn't compel people to give. I mean, he sort of said it was going to leave a bad taste in people's mouth. So maybe 10 years ago at this point, there was a synagogue near me in Sharon, Massachusetts, where the rabbi ran into the rabbi one day who knew I was doing some of this research historically and said, you got to check out what I'm doing here, what we're doing as a community. We just gave up dues and we went to this free synagogue model. They'd been through a long process of figuring out what they wanted to do. But essentially, it was during the recession of 2007, 2008. The dues model to them was no longer sustainable because every dollar that they raised their dues, people were leaving the synagogue. So they felt themselves a little bit trapped and they started looking for a new model. 
And they didn't know who Stephen Wise was. They didn't know anything about the history of it. But lo and behold, this model to them seemed like it was the one that was going to work the best. And so they implemented it with a lot of publicity around it. And lo and behold, they're still using it. And it was pretty successful from the get-go for all the reasons Stephen Wise said it was going to be successful 100 years ago. So are there other models that were used in addition to this sort of breakaway from the seat model? Were there other things that were going on at that time that are different the way that we do it now? There were smaller models that synagogues raised money in all sorts of ways in the 19th century that we don't do today. Some of them potentially could be brought back. Some of them maybe left. Whenever I talk to synagogues, they love the fact that it used to be in the 19th century that if people got out of line, the president would find them. So the synagogues would make a little bit of money. If you got out of line during services, you could be fined. If you were asked to be the president of the synagogue and you said no, you had to pay your way out of it. If you asked to be the vice, you get the idea. If you caused a ruckus, you could be fined. If you showed up to a minion wearing schleppy clothes, you could be fined. There was all sorts of ways in which you would be fined if you didn't sort of toe the line. That sort of went out of fashion. The more competition there was among synagogues, finding people went out of fashion as a way to raise money. And it never raised a huge bit of money anyway. Mm. But the other way that synagogues raise money, which some contemporary synagogues to this day do, but most American synagogues do now, they would auction off Aliot right in the 18th and 19th century. Um, it wasn't unusual to walk into a synagogue and have an Aliot there would be an auction for it. So you would pay money to get the third Aliyah on a Shabbos morning. That was another way that synagogues would raise money. Synagogues had bazaars, they had dances on the eve of the Civil War. It wasn't unusual for a synagogue to have dances or a bazaar or a party or something that would, a ball of some sort to raise money in that way. And so that sort of continues on in some fashion. The other model in the 1790s, the first synagogue in Philadelphia held a lottery to get rid of their debt. You can see in all of the emphasis on bingo in the latter part of the 20th century, lots of conservative synagogues near me played bingo for a lot of years. And most of yeah. them were up on it. But using bingo was another example of an old model that had been brought back, actually, because it was used in the 18th century in the colonial era and was brought back when bingo got hugely popular in America in the 1930s during the Depression. There was a brief 30-year period in New York City where there were for-profit synagogues just for the high holidays called mushroom synagogues. The saloon would close their doors on Rosh Hashanah and reopen as a synagogue and would charge money. They had a for-profit synagogue. There was probably a few hundred thousand Jews, maybe 150,000 Jews at their height that were going to high holiday services in Yiddish theaters, Yiddish taverns. Synagogues got so unhappy with this that they passed a law in New York State to this day. It's illegal to open up a for-profit high holiday synagogue. So I know you were thinking wow. about doing that, Michelle, yeah, next year. That was my next but number. I got to tell you, it's a misdemeanor. <laughs> you are not allowed to open up a for-profit uh-huh. um, high holiday synagogue. So there's a, anyway, there's yeah, lots of different sort of weird and interesting yeah. byways in the way that synagogues have funded themselves. Obviously, the other big way there is the dues model, which comes in, which is what synagogues mostly use now, which comes into being after World War One. And sort of a take on the dues model, there's the idea of one dues fits everybody, which is what most synagogues have. That is, you've got a general fee for everybody, and maybe there's something stratified if you're a senior citizen or you're under 40 or something like that. But it's basically just one fee and then exceptions based on age or some other status. The other way that synagogues funded themselves, which is also a dues model, but is a sliding scale. You pay based on how much money you made. And synagogues... So you'd have to tell them how much money you made. Correct. So some synagogues still use this model. Absolutely. When synagogues moved to dues in about 1919, when a lot of synagogues got rid of paying for seats, people were no longer interested in buying seats in synagogues. 
the writing at the time was all about the idea that we should move to a model where people would pay based on their income. I think historically it made sense because the income tax actually had just come into American history just a few years earlier. And a lot of the arguments were actually exactly the same as to why it made sense to fund a community based on how much you own were basically just rehashes of arguments that economists were making at a broad level about why people should pay taxes. So the idea very much was initially that sitting guys were going to get rid of paying for seats and they were going to institute effectively a tax. Now, that didn't work out. Most synagogues just came up with one number that everybody would use, probably for the sake of ease and probably for some sort of egalitarianism in its own way, that everybody would be paying roughly the same. But it does introduce the idea so broadly that dues are a kind of tax, that synagogues would be funded by something akin to a tax. For a long time, that model worked because that's how Jews thought of giving to a synagogue. They thought of it as a tax. And it's very different from the way that Christians think about giving to their church. They don't think of it as a tax. In Protestant churches, there's this thing called stewardship, which is the idea that you should give to your church. It's what God wants, is for you to give to your particular church, and that church is going to use that money for God's mission. And we, in the Jewish world, right, a rabbi is going to be fired the next day if he or she gets up on their bimah and says, I think God wants you to give to this synagogue. That is just not going to fly. We don't think about it in those terms. How do we think about kind of supporting a synagogue? So the idea of a tax, I think, was effective for a long time when Jews were brought up. Obligation. Obligation is part of it. A tax made sense. It fit the cultural template that Jews were going to pay tax. And one of the arguments that I make is that Jews clearly are no longer interested in paying taxes to a synagogue, to communal organizations. The reason the dues model isn't working in the same way for synagogues that it was is that it's lost its kind of cultural template. It's out of alignment, if you will, with the way that people think about money. When people are paying dues, they think tax or they think like I'm paying to a health club. And neither of that speaks to people's souls to joining a religious community. And so fundamentally, I think this is a kind of broad issue about culture and zeitgeist and how institutions want to position themselves. And I think the effectiveness of the pay-what-you-can model is based on being a better fit with where people are culturally. I just did with Synergy, UJ in New York, a study that came out two months ago on all the synagogues in America that have given up dues. We looked at why they gave up dues, and we also looked at were they successful? And this was a follow-up to a study I had done two years ago where there were 26 synagogues in that study that had given up dues. And now this study had 57 synagogues, and I already know of a bunch more synagogues. So the model has gone from a few synagogues 10 years ago to 26 synagogues as of three years ago to over 60 synagogues now. And my sense is it's not going to be the model for every synagogue by any means. But at the end of the day, it's going to be another way for synagogues to think about funding themselves. And the finding that we came out from this research is pretty instructive, and I'd say pretty positive, that across the board, every single synagogue that is of the 50-some-odd synagogues that I studied, every synagogue is happy that they moved to this model. Nobody is thinking about moving back. Across the board, the historical kind of weighted average sees amongst all these synagogues of over a 4% growth on a yearly basis and about a 2% revenue growth. I remember actually reading that, and I'll have it linked on your blog post page for people to get to. But there was also a dip at the beginning. Am I correct in having read this? That at the beginning, we're making the transition might have been a little bit harder, but then once nope. everyone kind of under, nope. no? What we said is that the second year was the year that was saw the highest annual average growth. 
but it wasn't at the first year it was a dip. The first year was still an increase across the board. Oh, okay. But the second but the year, larger increase, came the larger increase in the second year, it. and then it went back down. So third, fourth, and fifth year looks like it did the first year. That second year, probably because congregations do a lot of publicity work ahead of making this change mm-hmm. and get a lot of people excited, but they still have some kinks to work out. I don't have a great answer for why the second year as opposed to the first year or the third year. My presumption is that it's the second year because by that point, they've gotten their communications in alignment with their the executive director and the rabbi. Everybody's on board in the same way. Yeah about it. And so the second year saw the highest. The second year alone actually sees something like a 6% growth if we just look at the second year alone. The first and third and fourth years are in the 2 to 3% growth. Right. So altogether, it's about a 4% growth in terms of membership. What we did show in this study as well, a lot of people take advantage of this as synagogues want them to and join synagogues at a lower rate. But synagogues are looking for ways to lower the barriers to entry. This is one way that they're doing it. And so they know that people are going to come in and not necessarily pay what they used to pay under the dues model. The difficulty for synagogues is now you've got more members coming in, but it's over the long term and we'll see how this goes. Can they encourage those members to raise their contribution, their commitment, their nadeva, whatever they're going to call it in their particular synagogue, raise their contribution over the course of time? So what are you hearing from a synagogues when you go out and you talk to them? What's the hesitation? I mean, you've got this wonderful data. Oh, the Jews are going to snore. They're totally going to snore, like Jews snore. That's what they do. Like, Um, it's working, we're getting the money, we're fine. Why change anything? I'd say that what I hear is that we can't change because then people will take such advantage of that that we won't be able to raise the money. They're going to take advantage of this. And that's the hesitation. The hesitation is there's not the surety at least with dues, we know that people are going to have to call and work on a deal. We kind of have a better sense of our financial picture. If we just throw it all open and say, give us whatever you want, it's much more anxiety provoking. It's scary. And if we do that, people are going to take advantage. And so what happens is one, I encourage congregations not to throw the doors open to say, you can give us whatever you want, but to also be transparent. So I talk a lot about transparency when I work with synagogues to say, you need to make your numbers public in an easy way for anybody to understand. It's crazy, Michelle, that there's very few synagogues in America where I, not being a member of the synagogue, could get their financial information. Absolutely, They don't have to by law, so they don't. And generally, there's also some anxiety around it. If non-Jews knew how much we paid our rabbis, I think there is like something around that. Like if non-Jews knew how much we paid for our education directors, or if people knew in our own synagogue, maybe, congregations are transparent to their own members, generally with regard to they send them a budget every year. Right. Here's the salary line. Here's the salary. How much I can't get. Right. But that's not entirely being transparent. It's being transparent to your own members, but it's a pretty low level of transparency. Yes. What I'm interested in is for synagogues to forthrightly have something on all of their websites saying, here's the amount of money we take in. Here's where we spend it. You don't have to give me exact line items, but here's where we spend it. Here's where we didn't meet our goals. Here's where we didn't meet our goals. When you give money to AJWS, they send me that information. They send me a big glossy right. brochure. Synagogues can't do that generally. They're not big enough to kind of put together a brochure to say, here's where we've given the money. But they can do a hell of a lot better than they do now, which yeah. is basically nothing. So part of the deal is I tell synagogues, you have to be transparent with where you're raising money and where you're falling short if you're falling short. Let everybody in the congregation know where you stand financially and encourage people to give at the level by which the congregation is going to allow themselves to continue to function. So encourage people to give, but then throw the doors open. What I've found is that actually when you do that, it works. And despite the anxiety, it just works again and again and again. I've now seen it in over 55 synagogues. It's working again and again and again that this really works. 
So does this require a shift in staff priority as far as do you have to concentrate more on development and more on cultivating people to give that higher amount or to look at what they've given in the past and ask them for that similar higher amount? Yes. Um, So is that hard? I mean, if I am a rabbi or an executive director with zero fundraising development experience, Synagogues are doing that anyway. I mean, I think lurking around, Michelle, this conversation is in some cities, I've had the opportunity to go to a lot of cities and sort of talk about this model. And I usually don't get too far into a conversation with people when they bring up Chabad and say, why can't regular synagogues be more like Chabad? And so people look around and they see that Chabad has been very successful in drawing members and getting energy, and they want their synagogues to be more in that model. It's hard because Chabad and synagogues and a typical kind of conservative, independent, reformed synagogue are different. They're different in structure because Chabad usually doesn't have a board in the same way. It's also not necessarily democratically funded. That is, synagogues believe it's important that everybody gives something, whatever that something is. They see themselves as sort of a broad-based democratic funding model with a board whereas Chabad is much more nimble. But one of the things Chabad does, and I think has shown the synagogue community, is one of the things they do incredibly well and incredibly effectively is focus their efforts on developments, particularly high-end developments, and making the case to people that it's a mitzvah to support the Jewish lives of other people. Your gift is going to allow other people who may not be able to make the gift, may not feel themselves comfortable, to be a part of a community. And synagogues usually kind of take the opposite tack, which is we say that, but then there's also a kind of sense that, you know, why is Julie Goldberg going on vacation when she didn't pay the full dues that she was supposed to pay? (laughs) Chabad is not asking themselves why Julie Goldberg is going on vacation and they didn't pay the money. They are saying, let's just approach this entirely as a development-driven organization. So even if you don't touch your dues structure, I encourage congregations to think of themselves as entirely development-driven. And if somebody gives $5, you say the same level of thank you as somebody gives 2000 or $5,000 to a certain extent. Because if you're a typical nonprofit, yeah, you have special attention given to high-end givers, which I would expect synagogues, and I think there's nothing wrong with that, for synagogues to also understand that that may be part of this. Synagogues for a long time, if people didn't pay their dues, would really not even say thank you to somebody who gave $100. They'd say, why didn't you give $2,400? That's like Meshuggah these days. You got to say thank you to people no matter what they're giving. I sort of both say, yeah, it's okay to give some attention to high-end donors. That's the world we live in. I think it's fine, actually, as long as it's sort of within reason. And as long as you're giving love to people who are giving $100 as well and saying thank you, because it's a donation. Everything is a development dollar these days. Right. And that's the side of the equation that I think of more just because that's the side I'm on. You, know, you talked a little bit about that barrier of, you know, coming into a new community. Oh, it's $2,600 a year yeah. to join. And when I was on the board of my synagogue out in LA, we had 50% of people on dues relief. Totally. So, so how does that make you feel that you're somebody who's on quote unquote dues relief, that you have to have this very awkward conversation every year as to why you don't have $2,500? to participate in this community when you're like, just want to participate in the community. (laughs) Like, I'm sorry that I don't have this much extra. And now you're making people feel bad and these barriers to entry. And there's all this kind of negativity surrounding this due structure. It seems like it would be more of a no-brainer to me (laughs) to start thinking about ways to relieve that negative pressure and that negative connotation with your community. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. This episode has been made possible through the partnership with Nonprofit Learning Labs, designed to support nonprofit professionals in every stage of your career through online resources, webinars, and in-person institutes. 
Nonprofit Learning Lab connects you to other professionals and mentors to help you sharpen your skills. It's Who You Know, the podcast listeners can get 50% off membership and institute registration with the promo code You Know. Visit nonprofitlearninglab.org for more information. Use the promo code You Know. Before returning to my conversation with Rabbi Dan Judson, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next episode, Ruthie Warshenbrot, who is a program director at the Wexner Foundation, who discusses with me her work in Jewish professional development. One of the newer programs the foundation is coming out with is the Wexner Field Fellowship, which is now accepting pre-applications through September 6th. To find out more about this fellowship, please visit www.wexnerfoundation.org. And here is a clip from our upcoming conversation. And we have this conversation all the time about who's intervening at what stage for which set of professionals and how can we get more people the training. And the truth is that the obligation is not solely on these foundations. The Mm -hmm. obligation is on our field as a whole. And that was part of why I shared part of my story that I was deeply invested in as a professional at a small organization that had a very tiny budget, but they managed to pull money out to invest in my own professional development so that I could be a better professional there. I just believed that that was the norm. And it's not a lot of <laughs> right. do not have professional development budgets. And I think they should. And I hope that as Wexner Field Fellows and Wexner Graduate Fellows go to their organizations and talk about the things they learn. They make the case for their organizations to invest in their peers and others there. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Ruthie in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Dan. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a no-brainer for the reasons we discussed earlier. People are anxious, but I agree. I'll apologize to the executive director or the treasurer or whoever's job it is to have those conversations with families about money. And I'll apologize to saying something like, you know, I make the same joke to every congregation I speak with, which is, I know you grew up dreaming and hoping that one day you would be in a role of talking to families about their finances because that's probably always as a child, that's really what you want to do is be a congregational treasurer that has to talk to families about why they can't pay the $2,500. Like it's miserable for the synagogue to do it and it's miserable for the families to hear it. And the evidence actually points that we can get rid of all the misery. This work has been sort of enjoyable for me in the sense that I think it's the right values proposition and it's the right financial decision. And it's nice when those things can cohere together. Why are people feeling badly that they can't give $2,500? The research also shows that when given the opportunity to pay whatever they want, actually people don't suddenly take the opportunity to start giving $50 if they used to give $5,000. It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. People understand, especially if you make a coherent case for them, especially if you're transparent about their finances, people understand that things cost in the world and they make commitments appropriately. The Jews are not going to kind of all of a sudden abandon ship if your synagogue is a functional and a good synagogue. And I think also taking away that obligation, right? So if I'm a member of a synagogue and I say, you know, I can give you $500 as an upfront donation, right? Great. But then if I'm active in the synagogue and then I'm given another $500 at the fundraiser, I'm given, you know, $20 at the bake sale. It's not a fee for service, which I do know that some synagogues or organizations are trying that model, right? Services are X amount of dollars. Dinner is X amount of dollars. You know, Shavuot is X amount of dollars. 
But throughout the course of a year, when you're involved with a community, you're going to probably even give that amount of $2,500 throughout the year that maybe you're not giving in one lump sum. But then the people who are less engaged are going to give their appropriate amount of money that they feel they'd like to be engaged. So maybe it's even a, a combination model, really looking at the different ways that people engage and what that looks like financially. I think that's exactly right, Michelle. I think that's exactly right. The one interesting thing about synagogues, though, I'd just say is that in churches, it's just a matter of faith. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that was a, a matter of faith that the more active you are, the more you give. For synagogues, I think that is probably true, although we've not really studied it. But I'm also aware that lots of people give to synagogues who don't actively use it that much. And that they give either because it's their father's sin or their mother's sin, you know, something along those lines. Or um, they have it to give. <laughs> they have it to give, yeah. exactly. Or they still feel that obligation and they give even if they are only coming a few times a month. So a few just, times a year. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that's what I meant to say a few oh, times yeah, a year. No, I figured. <laughs> but I think that ultimately you're right in the sense that people give certainly on an ongoing basis and potentially synagogues become just more adapt at thinking about financial matters and maybe mix and match depending on who the people are that are coming to that particular synagogue. Some of a pay-what-you-can model, some of a fee-for-service model. Maybe they've got different groups doing different things. I think that makes a lot of sense to try and be culturally to where you are. You know, West Coast, what kind of a synagogue you are. A lot of this makes sense culturally as to how you're going to adapt some of these models. And I wonder if some people could go in with a slow process, right? New members are brought in on this kind of donation and our older members are still billed in the same way that they were, that they feel comfortable, that it doesn't have to be an all at once, everybody moving into this new space. I think that's right. The only caveat I would say, I talked to a lot of synagogues that want to do exactly what you just said as a way of sort of testing the water. The only thing I would say is that people understand that there's some gimmick or incentivization going on. (laughs) Again, we're trying to get at a culture of a spirit of giving for the sake of community and trying to get away from kind of like, I'm going to get a bargain out of this or mm-hmm. I'm somehow incentivized to come. We want to sort of have both, as it were. Lower the barriers to entry, create an understanding that finances are obviously crucial to an organization. It can't be a good organization, obviously, without necessary funding. And at the same time, sort of articulate for people that this isn't about finding some sort of special path or the way around it. It's pay what you can, but it is, we are in this together. We do need people to step up and it's not about getting a bargain. So I worry though, just about the kind of incentivization programs where it's like first year free and then next year it's a few thousand dollars. People get that. They well, get not so much that, free. but for somebody coming, right, you don't publish on your website, this is the dues. When the new family comes in and talks to you, you're talking to them about yep. like, give what you can. Not a, well, if you can't afford the $2,500, there's a dues relief program, right? Totally. Like, of language, bringing new people into the fold with those lowered barriers of entry and keeping a system that might keep veteran participants comfortable and understanding their way of giving as well. One of the other keys to this system, it's just that those veteran members, just because you sort of pointed to it, Michelle, I think one of the big places is not only does the system draw new members because it's a lower barrier to entry, but you've also taken away the opportunity for people who just had, let's say, a bar mitzvah or whose children just left for college. You've taken away their opportunity to say, well, I don't want to belong to a synagogue, not because I don't value the synagogue, but I just don't value it for $3,000. I'm sorry, I just don't use it that much. In this system, you know, those people are still members because you've taken away their ability to say that. You say, okay, you'll you'll value it how much you want to value it. And synagogues retain their membership. 
the onus becomes on the synagogue to continually engage people and prove their value to them. In, which only makes uh, them better, which right? Which only makes yeah. them better. Yeah. And only fits into everything else I think people are saying about synagogues and engagement, that they need to be more engaged in people's lives. I mean, it fits very much into, you know, I don't know if you've talked on the podcast before about Ron Wolfson's work, but that kind of relational Judaism yeah. idea that you've got to make synagogues be places of relation and real meeting. And that can only ultimately improve the bottom line for synagogues. I want to ask real quick, because synagogues are not just synagogues. They are also mostly religious schools. I'm curious how this model or this thinking fits in those parameters of also trying to educate our children. So let me take a simple question and give a long-winded historical answer, which... Excellent. You know... Sounds like um, that's what you're good at. (laughs) Yeah. In the 1950s, just to go back to suburban Judaism, where synagogues like out of control, the amount of building new synagogues and churches. There's a big article in Vanity Fair. No, one of the major magazines of the time. So it wasn't any term. I'm forgetting which magazine, I apologize. But there was an article that said that more money is being spent on churches and synagogues than at any time since Solomon built the temple. Is something about, in today's dollars, something over a billion dollars was spent in the 1950s building synagogues and churches. The number of synagogues in America rapidly increased between 1949 and 1960 all in the suburb for the most part. Those synagogues, a lot of them had two fundamentally different models. One model was that the synagogue would have a very low dues payment, but you would pay you know, a little bit for dues, but you would pay for the high holidays, you pay for school, you would pay for the sisterhood, you pay for the brother, you'd pay, like it was an a la carte basically, right. a little bit more the fee-for-service model. The other model was that flat fee covered absolutely everything. You wouldn't pay anything additionally. So roughly in the 1950s, you had synagogues working with one of those extremes. Very quickly, there came to be a kind of compromise, which was synagogue schools would be both covered by the synagogue and a fee that everybody would pay. As well, we wanted some a la carte, if you will, fee just for those people who use the school. Every synagogue in America, for the most part, already covers to some degree the school. The fees that people pay for synagogue schools don't cover the entire cost nope. of sins, right? You nope. know that you run a board of synagogue. Yes. So synagogues are already involved in that. They're already involved in paying. Really, the fee for school is pretty much for our school to exist. This is exactly how much it costs to some degree. We know what the synagogue is contributing. So, you know, that's a case, I think, where school fees are more precisely calibrated to what you're getting. So most synagogues that have moved to this model don't include school fees. School fees remain a thing. They do the same calculation. The synagogue is bound to give over this much to the school to pay for the school. So we're going to charge school fees in the same way that we always used to charge school fees to make up the difference. Is that because um, it feels more like you're getting something more. for what you're, you're paying for and you're specific? Yeah. It feels like 100%. a gym membership, right? We can't ask Mrs. Goldberg and Mr. Goldberg, whose children haven't gone to the school in 25 years, to cover the cost for synagogues, I think they've made this compromise. We can ask them to cover some of the cost. It can't be all the cost. There's got to be something that people in the school are actually paying. Now, historically, was that not the case? Like, historically, was there that sense of obligation that allowed for, yeah, it is Mr. or Mrs. Goldberg's responsibility to help the next generation um, of kids get good. educated? Historically, it was much more so. Mm-hmm. Historically, it was much more so. There have been fees, but historically, synagogues used to cover much more. I think synagogues used to see themselves much more as responsible in a communal sense for education. So I think that, yeah, there used to be more of a sense that synagogues would pay a bigger chunk of what the school would cost. You know, it also was the case that all these synagogues in the suburbs actually were schools, which then became synagogues. 
we kind of think, uh, I don't know what we think. Anybody who thinks, for the two people in the world who think about how synagogues are right. <laughs> uh, nobody actually thinks about this. But if you actually look at it, the development of synagogues and all those many synagogues in the suburbs, many of them started as schools and then became synagogues. That is, people would come right. together in the suburbs and they Absolutely. wanted a place to educate their kids. And so they would do that and they'd be like, Absolutely. hey, let's have services. We need a rabbi. Eh? So it's actually the school that came first before the synagogue philosophy. Right. So there was always a sense that the school and the synagogue should be funding the school initially because they were the reason that it, was, it all yeah. came together. So it sort of drifted away from that, but you still have this sense that synagogue is going to pay for some, but not all of the school. As I started, there's one synagogue though that is using the pay what you can model also for the school. They've just started out. No more school fees either. Just everything is totally pay what you can. Whatever you can do for the school, great. You'll pay what you can for your voluntary commitment. And if you're sending your child to school, whatever you can do. So we'll see how it goes. Most synagogues' anxiety was enough that even all those 50-plus synagogues that I studied, most of them, their anxiety wouldn't let them take that model and bring it to the school as well. But we'll see. Maybe, Maybe in due time. It really is turning synagogues into Jewish nonprofit organizations. Oh. I mean, this is how all of our organizations operate outside of the synagogue movement. And, you know, Jewish thing, AJWS doesn't have members that pay dues to it. It raises finances from people who think that the work that they are doing is worthy of their finances. So that really is updating and modernizing our synagogues to kind of match the other models in Jewish life that are working. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That is exactly right, Michelle. That's the whole point is that bringing synagogues into alignment with the rest of the Jewish nonprofit world, which Mm -hmm. are ahead of them. That is 100%. So what's the future? What does the future hold for synagogue finance for this model? Are you just hoping to see this trend keep going upwards? What do you see? Your crystal ball? No, I think this model is only going to continue to attract attention. Again, I don't think every synagogue is going to move to it. It doesn't make sense for every synagogue to move to it. If you're a strong synagogue that's been able to create a sense of commitment from your membership and are doing well, I wouldn't encourage you just for the Mm -hmm. sake of it to move to it. It doesn't make sense. So I think that that'll continue. I think it'll just continue pace. There'll be more and more synagogues, but certainly by no means should there be every synagogue. I do think that what we spoke about before is going to be the notion of development and synagogues ever more sort of following the trend of federations and other places, which are seeing sort of the number of givers dwindle, but seeing in the case of, for example, where I am in the Boston Federation, they still see a rise in their annual giving. It's just coming from less members. I don't think it's necessarily a good thing by any means, but it just is the world. And I think synagogues will probably get on that train as well of, as you said before, I think focusing ever more on the development, what they're doing to make the case that to people with means and resources, that it's important for them to be able to fund communal life for other people to join. So I think we're going to see more of that, not less than that. I don't know whether we're going to see fee-for-service model take off. In some ways, synagogues you know, we want to be countercultural. I agree with you 100%. We need to be more like Jewish nonprofits. I'm not necessarily sure we need to be more like for-profit institutions. Right. You know, when somebody comes and says, you know, synagogue should run like a business. I don't think it should run like a business. It should just run like a smart nonprofit. It's very interesting yeah. when you talked about the buying the seats model. What I was thinking about was like, well, this sounds a lot like a business, like a shareholder yeah. that you own a piece of it. And I like that, right? I kind of yeah. like that idea that like I have a financial stake in the company, in the organization. And not that I'm then like getting a piece of the profit, right? right. But that there's a plate near a seat that like has our name on it, that we are, you know, visibly invested in that 
building in those employees in that community. How do you create that sense of shareholderness without it being a business or without you buying a seat? You know, I sometimes think that buying a seat for a sort of emotional, spiritual community is actually amazing. Would be amazing to come back to a model like that. It just seems like so not, not where the future, right. not where the future lies precisely because you are totally invested. If you've actually bought a right. seat, you are in, which seems great. There has but, to be a folding seat. So some days yeah. you want to sit over there, some days you want to sit over here. <laughs> Buying seats went out of fashion because it, you know, it became seen as sort of anti-egalitarian at a moment in history when egalitarianism was considered a really important thing. So that people were sense. less interested in buying seats. But the other thing is, again and again, synagogues spend a lot of money on their fiscal plant. If it were up to me, I'd be terrible for the future of Jewish architecture because I feel like no synagogue would ever actually purchase a building unless right. they could do it all without a mortgage coming up for them. Because you just see, if you take the long view historically, synagogues again and again overbuild and then burden next generation of the community paying debt service on the building. And then what happens is that synagogues need to get members, not because they want to grow as a spiritual community, but they need to get members only to serve the debt on the building. Like Like it makes no sense. So, you know, I'd be bad for the architecture and the building business. Also understanding the shifting demographics and geological areas that we are. There's there's like a re-urbanization going on Mm -hmm. that also is, you know, if you're somebody who wants to live in a city, like the idea of having a synagogue, necessarily a synagogue building, that is the synagogues that they're responsible for upkeep, et cetera doesn't make sense to me. But, you know, again, I don't think that makes me happy with the architecture trade or the, <laughs> or the, the people who really want to own, who, I get it, who want to own their own space, who think there's something viable. There's value. Space. There's value, the value. For me, I think like if it's possible to cultivate nimble, thoughtful synagogues that are nimble and thoughtful in their finances, as well as in the ways that they reach out to people, as well as in the way that they market to people, as well as the way that they communicate online and other, you know, and providing online resources. I mean, I think that's got to be the future. I mean, at least that's the immediate future. Oh, Lord knows, right. in 20 years, who knows? <laughs> but in the next 10 years... Back to do's in 20 yeah. years. Yeah. I think the other piece which ties into the work, my day job is being involved in a non-denominational seminary is that we're seeing pretty clearly, you know, denominational attraction and interest on the wane. That synagogues are called upon to be ever more locally relevant just being a brand of the national movements is not going to do it for you anymore. And you need to kind of match in a thoughtful way your surroundings. Regardless of national denomination doesn't mean anything to people for the most part anymore. It's how can you be locally relevant to the place that you are, to the Jewish community that you're seeing? So I see a lot of, as I'm sure most people are seeing, a lot of synagogue mergers and synagogues coming together over various things, which is really interesting. It's like 50 years ago, Synagogue X left Synagogue Y because Mrs. Cohen wasn't allowed to have an aliyah. So a reformed synagogue, right. which would allow Mrs. Cohen to have an aliyah, sprouted up. 50 years later, they're now looking at each other. And Mrs. Cohen can have the aliyah at our synagogue too. And like whatever we broke apart of actually doesn't feel so crucial anymore. So let's either share a building, let's merge, let's share a rabbi, maybe keep our buildings. We see all sorts of kind of innovation to get at some of this nimbleness, which I think is really healthy and necessary. So it's interesting, synagogues that thought of themselves as competition 10 years ago, 20 years ago, are now coming together and seeing themselves, well, this is a Jewish community. And I sort of to hearken back to an old model, synagogues before 1825, there was only one synagogue per city. So every synagogue was the community synagogue. Americans love competition, so that wasn't going to last forever. <laughs> 
And so I don't imagine that one day we'll go back to a model where there's just one synagogue per community. But the resources kind of point in that direction that can you create local institutions which are sort of flexible and nimble enough to reflect their surroundings that you only need one institution to serve this community so you're not overtaxing Jewish resources. Well, and I was just thinking a little bit about there's a contracting and an expanding that kind of happens over time when it comes to both urban and rural, but really also national and local, right? And I don't know how other denominations work. I know mostly how the reform denomination work. And I know that their new structure is changing because yeah. if you say we have 500 members and that's what they're basing, how much you quote unquote owe the umbrella yep. organization, but that's not really how you want to do that. And it's a kind of a trickle up, trickle down where these individual synagogues are saying, I don't know if that's fair. And our umbrella organizations are saying, you're right, we're going to use your total income and yep. percentage yep. of your total income. Or You are in deep, Michelle. I just want to say that's like some <laughs> denominational knowledge. But yeah, absolutely. It's that kind of trade off. But then you talk about, you know, people questioning that, like, well, why? Why am I giving you money? And I'm sure that the umbrella organizations can communicate to you exactly why and then yep that, but you see that kind of expansion and contraction of, you know, we want to be global and national and connected. And then, well, maybe we're coming to a place where we lost focus and lost sight of developing those local communities. And now that's suffering. And now that's a refocus that we're trying to create. Synagogues hate paying money upstream. Two things about that. One is, it's not new that they hate paying that. I found that in 1890 board minutes, 1900 right. board minutes. First thing to go when there was a financial aid is, so let's stop paying money to the Union of American Hebrew Congregations. So it's not new that they don't like paying money upstream. But what is new, we're in a phase of localism. And even as much as we are sort of more connected as ever before, there is certainly a phase of localism when it comes to denominations. What I would say, Michelle, about that is that if you look to our Christian neighbors, you would see where that's going, which is, the Christian denominations are in all sorts of trouble. Baptists easily moving to Methodism, Methodism becoming UCC. We just look to to what's going on in the liberal Christian world. People are jumping between denominations very easily. And I want to say living as Jews in that majority culture, we're bound to take on a bit, if not more than a bit, of that sensibility. We're not doing it because Christians are doing it, but I just think it's the same cultural forces, which we see even more dramatically at work in Christian churches and people moving between denominations are at work within the Jewish world and people sort of moving to denominations. And I think people care less about ideology, I want to say, than in previous age. The internet, if you want information, you don't have to go to your denomination for the internet, obviously. You know, you just go to the internet and you find the information that you want. So some of their really formative raison d'etre between information givers as well as providers of ideological bases have kind of been pulled out. So they need to fundamentally rethink who they are. And you see in the Christian denominations, you see it in a more dramatic way where those denominations are struggling to retain membership and have viability and have people paying money upstream. It's even more significant. The sort of very successful congregations in the Christian world In Boston, there's a congregation in Lexington. It's an evangelical congregation, which is weird that there's an evangelical congregation in Lexington. Just if you know Lexington, Boston is not nearly known for its evangelical Christian surroundings, but there's a massively successful church in Lexington, thousands of people every Sunday. It's massively successful. And they ask people to believe in the major of majors. They say, we don't have any position on anything minor. We're not part of any denomination. We just have a few basic ideas. And if you believe in those, like you're welcome here. We'll figure out all the minor stuff together. There's something about that. They provide an incredible community and incredible service, which 
where they are liturgically and ideologically, they basically say, we have just a few things we actually believe and everything else is kind of up for conversation. I sort of see that similarly as why people are jumping ship in denominations. There's a few things that people want out of their synagogue ideologically, probably that there's just an authentic sense of Jewish being in the world. And everything else, the sort of particulars of it, will figure out. So I think that's where the Jewish world is sort of moving towards that Christian sensibility right now. Well, and your daytime job is proving that as far as... People are hiring Hebrew college rabbis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's and, more about the big overarching values than the more specific identity of a particular movement. Yes, exactly. As you just <laughs> said, Michelle. I know that I can keep talking to you specifically about this subject. You have accidentally found yourself in a wonderful area of research and interest. Yeah. But definitely on the cusp of a fantastic change in, in the way that we run our synagogues nation, our North American wide, really. So I want to kind of pivot a little bit to what advice you have. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of asked this question broadly, whether it's Jewish professionals at URJ or the conservative movement umbrella organization or in synagogues, in the weeds of things, or even to lay leaders who are trying to grapple with these issues and think about if this is right for their community. What kind of advice would you give people listening? We are blessed or cursed, I'm not sure, with a kind of profusion of interest in Jewish professional life. I mean, this podcast is a reflection to some way of that. E-Jewish Philanthropy, which I look at every morning, which lots of Jewish professionals look at every morning. And just, do I want to read any of these articles? And, you know, it's an amazing service. So we're living in this weird moment where there's lots of interest in Jewish professionals. And there's lots of programs out there for Jewish professionals who are interested in developing their leadership skills. I'm involved in the Mandel Foundation is launching a new program for Jewish Federation and JCC executives to improve their leadership skills. We're like living in this moment where there's a lot more resources and money being provided for the professional development of Jewish professionals than at any time. Like we've gone from like zero to 60, uh, whatever the right analogy is, in a pretty short amount of time. I feel like there didn't used to be any of this stuff. Right. And now there's a lot of it. And so I feel like one advice is pretty obvious, which is if you're in the Jewish world and not availing yourself of this, you're not taking advantage of what's out there. There's so many net resources now, various types of leadership programs and e-Jewish philanthropy and all these things that people should be um, listening to. There's lots of ideas out there about where the future of the Jewish community is going. I would say the exact flip of sort of the now is, you know, I'm sure I'm not alone at federations in particular, but synagogues totally come upon an idea and then sort of launch themselves dramatically on anything that might bring a single millennial into their fold. It's like, you know, and it's the holy it just feels weird to me. Like it, it's that awkward, right? It's that awkward, weird, like, Michelle, you look like you're a millennial. Like, I'm sure you feel weird sometimes probably getting inundated with Federation material. That's like the latest thing that the Federation is going to do to, you know, try and draw you in as a millennial. I feel like some of it gets icky and weird and sort of Jewish institutions that is synagogues, Federations, JCCs are not the best incubators for new programs. So I sort of want to take a long view of federations and synagogues. I'm not really worried. Maybe I should be, but synagogues have been around for thousands of years. But it's not as if I think that synagogues are going to sort of go out of business tomorrow if they don't figure out how to address millennials. Millennials grow up. Millennials grow, exactly. <laughs> they will soon you you know, be your yeah. exact demographic. Just wait a little bit. It doesn't mean that every synagogue is going to stay in business, you know? mm-hmm. but it does mean that we don't need to kind of leap and jump to the latest thing at the expense of what we might know is sort of tried and true, as it were, Torah that works for the Jewish community. 
And I think the hard part, I think, for younger Jewish professionals is figuring out, are they on something that's just a kind of flash in the pan or are they part of a tried and true? And so mm-hmm. that discernment process, I think, is difficult. It's not clear to me which of these organizations and which of these pathways are going to be successful in just three or four or five years from now. The nice part is the timeline is probably speeded up so that things you'll know pretty quickly or there's something right. you're in a kind of successful or not endeavor. It's just that sort of kind of breath around Jewish organizations, institutions must be addressing the plight of millennials or they have, they're sort of never going to survive. I think we could chill out a little bit. I agree. And I think the one thing that I've been getting out of a lot of these interviews is overwhelming sense of hope and positive excitement for the future. And if I can impart that to my listeners in any way, everyone is just. As you mentioned, so many wonderful programs for Jewish professionals, so many exciting things and innovation, so many wonderful, wealthy donors who are deciding to take their money and look at what are the biggest issues and tackle them and find a way to fund research like yours and to help move things forward. I am in no way at all (laughs) worried about the future of the Jewish community, which is nice. Jonathan Sarno has been my main teacher. And if you read his book, which I want to encourage even the non-historians out there, it's just a brilliant book. One of the points he makes, if not the central thesis of the book, is that Jewish life is cyclical. It's not as if Jews came to this country 200 years ago and they were all from Yidin. They were all religious Jews and they've all been sort of becoming less and less Jewish and less caring about Judaism. And now where we are today, in trouble. The Jewish life is cyclical and the energy and enthusiasm behind Jewish life has been cyclical. There's been peaks and wanes of when people cared more or less about Jewish institutions. I do think to some degree we're in a trough that is compared to where we were maybe 20 years ago. The kind of excitement around synagogues or new programs of Jewish learning institutions is down. And at the same time, it's to say that, as you just said, Michelle, there's hope. It's going to come back. Like these things are cyclical. The Jewish community is so creative in some ways that ensures itself time and again of renewing itself. We are seeing the seeds of that and it will renew itself. We'll come back. Awesome. Well, any other thoughts that you have lingering about your work or, or things you think people should hear or know? Synergy, which is a part of UJA Federation, is amazing. And they funded this last study that I did. It's very hard to find people who are interested in synagogues actually to fund research. Most research around synagogues is sort of anecdotal. That is, somebody writes an essay because they had the success at their synagogue. And maybe they find two or three other people who are successful. But a serious study of almost anything in synagogue life is out of the reach for people who want to actually study synagogues. And in churches, there's like, there are academic institutions that actually study churches, do real sort of broad-based study of churches. And there's no broad-based study of programs, institutions, membership, you name it, in synagogues. And part of that is just simply funding. So if there are people yeah. who are like interested in funders are listening to your program Absolutely. and want to sort of think about sort of improving the lives and ensuring the future of synagogues, I could think of worse things than funding some synagogue research. That's a gap in general that I think we're experiencing. I've always gotten very frustrated at organizations or federations. I'm trying not to throw anyone under the bus, but say this is what you want and not taking the time to build the research or the information or ask people, what do you want? And going from there. But research is so, so very important to get at the knowledge of how do we move forward? Where are we at? Who are we? What's important to us? And without that, we're just flying blind. And simply sort of measuring success, it's really hard to measure success in synagogues in anything more than an anecdotal way. Really, Synergy is, I'm, I'm grateful to they're amazing. UJ Federation New York has been amazing, but they're the seemingly, you know, outside of their purview, there's not, there's not a lot of interest in funding synagogue research. So 
Well, and especially in your area of finance, because yes, not public, <laughs> it's not public information, and it's, <laughs> it's not public information. So it takes somebody to actually yeah. have to call, and you've got to you know do a little talking to convince people you're not. You know, because as we talked about before, in terms of transparency, people actually takes me a little cajoling and I have to say, oh, I know your rabbi. He said, I know, you know, right. he said, it's okay if I talk to you. He said, they said, it's okay if I talk to you. And so it's okay if you tell me how many members you had last right. year. Because you're like, it's a little mashuga, but like, I actually have to sort of do all that work just to Massage get a little that bit, contractor yeah. off and to be like, okay, I guess I can tell you how many members we had last year. And right. Yeah, this year, like it actually takes people hours to yeah. make that happen because of the anxiety around sharing information <laughs> about synagogues and money is like totally anxiety provoking. So it just takes people hours to do the kind of research. And the- yeah. And I'll give you another shameless plug. When is your book coming out? The book is coming out hopefully in the spring of 2018. University of New England Press. Awesome. I'll be looking out for that. Well, thank you so much for the work that you have done. It's exciting to see what comes of it in the future. So thank you so much for taking your time today and explaining a little bit more about what you've learned and how we're going to move forward. Thank you. Great. My pleasure, Michelle. Thank you so much. There's a very clear reason that I wanted to bring Rabbi Dan Judson on the program. This idea of synagogue dues or synagogue contributions or synagogue support as optional is something that I've been hearing a lot about. More so, I've been hearing about how expensive it is to be Jewish. As a nonprofit Jewish professional, I know I'm not going to be making six figures for a majority of my career. So where does that leave my family in being able to participate in the Jewish community that I work so hard to build for others? What Dan is proposing for synagogues or for any Jewish community is to throw open their doors and welcome in everyone. And when you work to build those connections and relationships, then money follows. People support the community that they are a part of. And the more people who say they're part of your community, regardless of their financial support, the better off your entire community will be. As Rabbi Dan Judson said, this of course isn't easy, but it is important as professionals working in synagogues to always be thinking about different ways we can be doing our work better different ideas and perspectives that may be working in other parts of the country that might work in our community as well. I look forward to seeing where the research goes and where Dan can take this wonderful idea and help keep our institutions strong and providing a place where Judaism can thrive. If you have questions for Rabbi Dan Judson or want to know more about his book and his articles, his information is on our website. It's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. We want to thank our partner, Nonprofit Learning Lab, for their support of this project. I want to remind listeners that they can get a 50% off discount on any service they provide with the promo code YOUKNOW. Visit nonprofitlearninglab.org to check them out. As I mentioned over the break, our next episode will be featuring Ruthie Warshenbrot as she discusses her experience working for the Wexner Foundation. She wanted me to make sure our listeners all know about the new Wexner Field Fellowship, which is now accepting pre-applications through September 6th. For more information about eligibility and how to apply, visit wexnerfoundation.org. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and you can find previous episodes, guest bios, book recommendations, and more on our website. It's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful week. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at itswhoyouknowthepodcast.com or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. 
As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast. 